0: the star of the basketball team, he was a Christian, everybody knew him as the stud Christian guy in school, and uh, Henry really worked hard to be right, and one day he was having a conversation with a friend, and the friend said to Henry, Henry, what is it that you um, are anxious about? And Henry said, I, I really don't feel anxious at all, and my friend said, really? She, she wasn't a Christian. You don't feel anxious about it? No, I, not really. A few months later, uh, Henry's father had an affair. His parents got divorced. The same friend of ours asked Henry a question again. Henry, what are you anxious about? What's changed in your life now that your parents are divorced? Well, no, nothing. I'm, I'm doing great. You know, Jesus loves me. I'm doing great. Okay. Really? Henry goes off to school. Went to Baylor, graduates, marries. And again, at a reunion, a friend asked him, Henry, so what's going on in your life? How are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm doing great, doing great. Really, like, what are you, what are you how, you know, are you, are you, uh, are you, like, struggling with work? No, I'm doing great, fantastic, great. Oh, okay, okay, great. Jesus loves me, great. And Henry had developed over the years, uh, I would call it a Christian neuroses about things going great in his life. You know these kind of people, right? The kind of people that you ask them how they're doing, and it's always, oh, I'm doing great, I'm doing great, Jesus loves me, I've had 10 quiet times in three days, it's been great. And Henry had a hard time admitting that he wasn't doing great. I knew Henry really well, and I knew he wasn't doing great. And not long after he got married, after college, um, his wife left him. She walked out on him, and Henry, who was in the ministry, became an atheist. He looked back at his life, and he realized that what he had done was put together an image that everything was going great, but inside of him was a very slow burn, very slow, so that one day he completely crumbled from the inside out. Psalm 37 begins, as we said two weeks ago, with this phrase, fret not because of evildoers. And when you and I read that phrase, I initially think, you may too, like fret not because Because of evildoers, and I look around all my friends and my situations, and I don't see any Philistines sitting outside my door, like I don't see any evildoers, do you? Like for those of us who have been abused, oh, it's easy to see an evildoer. For those of us who have been thrown under the bus at work, it's easy for us to see an evildoer. For those of us who have been rejected by our spouse, oh, it's easy for us to see an evildoer. For those of us who have been victim of horrible tragedies, it's easy for us to see how we have an evildoer. But the Hebrew word for fret is much more complex than just being worried about somebody who is going to harm us. The Hebrew word for fret means a slow burn. It is a combination of worry and self-pity and envy and anger. You ball all that together, and you keep it in, and you get fret. Are you fretting an evildoer? doer? Well, maybe your life is great and you don't see any evildoers, but maybe that phrase actually means more than that. Like maybe because you're at work at 6 a.m. in the morning every day because your father never made you feel like you were good enough. Maybe you're fretting an evildoer. Maybe because you can't leave the house without makeup and your nails done because your mom may never have told you how pretty you were. Maybe you're fretting an evildoer. Maybe for those of you who um, are single and you've been to the dating scene and been rejected and been burned and you, maybe you haven't had a date in 10 years. Like maybe you're fretting an evildoer. Maybe it's just the culture that you don't want to date. I don't know, maybe that's the culture. But maybe it's because you're fretting an evildoer. Those of you who are afraid to leave your house because of the darkness, Maybe you're fretting, an evil doer. Those of you who are always trying to present yourself as that you have it all together, maybe you're fretting an evil doer. Listen, to fret means to burn from the inside out. And there are a lot of Christians in Owasso. There's a lot of Christians in Oklahoma who have grown up in the church and they have, ma- they have manicured themselves to look like they have it all together, but inside there's a slow burn. You know, this happens in nature. Did you know that? There's a bipolar medicine that uh, you can take. Maybe somebody in this room is taking it, I don't know, but it can produce in about one in a million people something called the Stevens-Johnson's syndrome, which is that your body literally burns from the inside out because of an allergic reaction. You don't really know it until you go to the hospital with your rash and realize that your internal organs have been burning. Or when lightning strikes a tree, you know, lightning can strike a tree in such a way that the inside of the tree catches on fire, but people don't know it's on fire because they can't see the smoke. It travels up the trunk until the tree falls down. If you grew up in West Texas, you may have seen the cotton trailers when the cotton trailers are packed. And farmers will tell you that sometimes those cotton trailers will all of a sudden just go because they caught on fire on the inside of the trailer and the cotton absorbed the smoke so much so that the farmers didn't even know it was on fire until all of a sudden the, train, the trailer that it's in just crumbles. Fret not an evildoer. <laughs> in this psalm, it is the greatest case study of how not to fret an evildoer, whatever that evildoer, whoever that evildoer may be. We saw two weeks ago that we have admonitions. Fret not an evildoer, wait on the Lord, trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord. Then last week we talked about the comparison between somebody who is being attacked, the righteous, and somebody who's doing the attacking, the wicked. And we said the righteous are those who are in God's covenant of grace and the wicked are those who are outside of God's covenant of grace. And this week we look at the end of the psalm where David gives to us promises. How is it that you're not to fret an evildoer? David says there are two promises I want you to know. And then he gives us some steps to do. Two promises that he wants us to know. How do you not fret an evildoer? Toward the end of the psalm, lower your eyes with me. And look, it says the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. The promise of the gospel is that he establishes your steps. That the Lord knows who are His, and if you by faith trust in Him, He establishes your steps. And notice that even though He establishes your steps, what does verse 24 say? Though He fall, doesn't mean it's going to be great. Though He fall, He shall not be cast headlong, which is a great encouragement to me because I don't get to hold God accountable to my version of what success is. Though we fall according to our own versions of success, He holds us. The promise that David wants to give us is that your Father holds you securely. He holds you. How do you begin to not fret an evildoer? You have to know that Jesus holds you. He's there. And even though you fall, He will not let your foot slip. Notice it goes on and it says, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom in verse 30 and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. David says, you want to learn how to not fret. You have to know that God holds you securely. When fidget spinners were all the rage this spring. Do you remember those? When fidget spinners were all the rage, elementary school kids were flocking to Toys R Us to buy fidget spinners. But our middle school and high school kids were flocking to their bedrooms to watch a Netflix series called Thirteen Reasons Why. Have you heard about this series? It's a series of a story of a girl named Hannah Baker, who is the new kid at school at Liberty High. She tries to fit in, and it's a series of disappointment, after disappointment, after disappointment. 13 disappointments, actually, and 13 people. And in the end, Hannah takes her life. And the story was produced by uh, Selena Gomez to help us, and it accomplished that aim, talk about suicide. And it did a great job of opening up conversations about suicide, which which is a fantastic conversation to have. But one of the dangers of the movie is that it glorifies suicide as a form of retribution. It glorifies suicide as a solution to Hannah Baker's problems. It glorifies the inadequacies and the irresponsibilities of Hannah's own decisions in that process. And in the lives of millions of middle school kids around the country, most high school kids actually look at it and think, well, yeah, well, if I was Hannah, I would have made a different decision. They are a little bit more mature. But the middle school kids who long to be in high school, they drink it up like Kool-Aid. And so middle school kids, let me just, let me tell you something, if I can. High school kids, please listen to me. If we lived 400 years ago, In your lifetime, you would probably hear 15,000 hours of sermons. That's what a Puritan would hear in his lifetime. 15,000 hours. By comparison, if you've been to Trinity every Sunday for six years, you've heard 156 hours of sermons. And 15,000 hours seems like an extraordinary amount of time to listen to somebody preach. But listen, I want to argue that you actually hear far more hours of sermons in your life than 15,000 because every time you look at your phone and every time you watch a documentary, you are taking in sermons. You are taking in counsel. And students, let me just tell you that the value of the church is not that we have it all together, but that we are fellow strugglers with you, some of us four times your age and we know what it's like to struggle. And that's why we submit ourselves to the preaching of God's word because it holds out promises for us in the darkness of depression that remind us of what is true and beautiful and good. And here David holds out the promise that Jesus holds you and you feel like nobody else does. He loves you. He will not let your foot slip. Secondly, not only does he hold you securely, but he welcomes you freely and forever. Toward the end of the psalm, David hones in on a second promise. It's in verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good, so, that you sh- that so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the earth, inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And then down in verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. But the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. In other words, the Lord welcomes you. He doesn't just hold you, but he welcomes you. He hosts you and not just temporarily, but forever. And hospitality and celebration go together. When Jesus welcomes you, he celebrates you. When you fret an evildoer, listen, all the sermons that you hear from all your social media sites, from everybody that you get counseling from at work or at school, they're all telling you some kind of worldview and truth to believe. But here the gospel is saying that Jesus holds you and he hosts you. He welcomes you freely. My friend Henry had a hard time being welcomed by Jesus, and his whole life, he struggled to earn God's acceptance, and in his situation, it actually went back to the lack of acceptance that he felt like he had from his own dad. And the church is full of people like that, who are just worn out by changing diapers, who are worn out by their kids week after week, who love their children, but many moms feel guilty when they take a break. Don't feel guilty. Somebody has to change the diaper. Yes, but it's okay to take a break. The the greatest insult I think that we as Christians can offer one another is the refusal to receive hospitality. There's a Scottish uh, theologian um, who once said that Christians' greatest sin is not that they're not neighbors to others, but it's actually that they are incapable of being served by their neighbor because we feel like we have got to keep it all together. But in the gospel, listen, you are the guest. Jesus is the host and he welcomes you with open arms, and that is the promise. And that is also one of the reasons why you are fretting the evildoers, because you have a hard time being served by your Savior who loves you, who comes to you and says, I know your burdens, I'm holding you, I love you. It's called grace. And many of you have never known it, because you're fiercely trying to earn your acceptance because you forgot that you already had it. God welcomes you forever. The images of God throughout Scripture are soaked in the metaphor of hospitality. God provides manna and quail every day in the wilderness for a hungry and often very ungrateful people. God offers shelter in a rock And in a land for his people, God offers refreshment through living water. Israel's covenant identity was both dependent on God for welcome and provision, and yet they were also answerable to God for their own treatment of the alien and the stranger. In the New Testament, Jesus is the gracious host. He welcomes the tax collector and the sinner. He welcomes children and prostitutes. And those who thought that they were the preferred guests at the party were shocked by how hospitable Jesus was to the marginalized of society. And you know who else he welcomes? You. Christian, he welcomes you. And some of you have forgotten that. You've taken the invitation that He's given you to dwell with Him securely in the land and say, no, I can't do that. That means I would enjoy my Christian life. Listen, He's given it for you to enjoy. What is the chief end of man we teach our children? To glorify God and enjoy Him. One of the greatest sins, Paul says, The unpardonable sin is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. That is a fierce unbelief, rejecting the gospel altogether. And I would say a close kissing cousin to that is the refusal to receive hospitality. The refusal to be welcomed. There was a um, a dear friend of mine who, um, many of you know, that went home for... uh, uh, to see his family one day and his brothers, they were all going to a restaurant and they said, uh, hey, we gotta stop by the car dealership because uh, I gotta get my car fixed. He drove a really, really nice car. And uh, they stopped by the dealership and it was a Mercedes and a Volvo and a Land Rover dealership or something like that. And they said, hang on a second, I'm gonna uh, go inside and pay the bill, come with me. And so uh, my friend comes with them and he sits down in the chair and uh, five minutes later, comes back, and there's a, there's a sales manager that comes up there and, and says to my friend, here you go. Congratulations. you got a great family. And he held the key to this new car, and he said, um, excuse me? Your brothers just bought you a car. What is this? And they said, listen, we love you, and we know that ministry is hard. And we wanted to buy you a car, a good car that you could take care of your family in. And you can imagine, he melted. And we're sitting together at lunch, a bunch of pastors together, and he says, guys, I have a real, I've got a real problem, and I don't know what to do about it. And he starts weeping about the burden of this car. And he says, guys, there are people who support me in ministry who don't drive a car this nice. I can't drive this car because I feel guilty driving it. It's the nicest car I'll ever own. What should I do? And all of us around them said, well, you should actually give me the car. That's what you should do. (laughs) All of us around them said, you know what you need to do? You need to open that sunroof. You need to roll down those windows, you need to turn that stereo on as loud as you stinking can, and you need to sing for joy and enjoy that car. You need to drive it and enjoy it. And it was a beautiful picture of my own heart when the Lord gives me something beautiful and amazing, and yet I just want to fret over the evildoers of my life. God has given you his presence to enjoy, to rest in, but you cannot do that unless you believe the promises of God more surely than you believe every other counselor in your life telling you that you don't measure up. You don't feel like you're accepted because you forgot that you already are by your Savior. David tells us that we are are held securely. He also tells us that God is the great host, who welcomes us freely. Will you allow him to make you his guest of honor? Every command in this chapter, this psalm, is in the second person singular, which means you, alone. And David is almost trying to construct this psalm in such a way that through the active participles in Hebrew, he is trying to say, no, every person of this audience, this is for you. Not the neighbor next to you. You. You need to rest. You need to know that your Savior loves you and he's with you. Frighting your evildoers, listen, will only become the warping wolf of your life unless you begin to trust in the promises of God. Okay, great. Thank you, Blake. Great sermon. All right. Trust in the promises of God. How do I do that? Well, at the very end of the psalm sums up the theology. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in him. So what do you do to not fret evildoers, to begin to believe these promises of God? What do you do? Well, the first thing that you do is that you pray. That's why the psalm is given to you you pray to him and you ask him for perspective to have the long view beyond your evildoers. Students, high school may seem forever, but it will pass. Those of you who are going through the valley of the shadow of death right now, the gospel gives us the long view. It's like it gives us a periscope to see out of the valley and around the corner to the hope that we have in Christ, that he will indeed one day end the tongue of the wicked. It will no longer wag, and you will be free, secure in his arms forever. God's going to judge the world. But you first need to learn how to pray to him. Some of you know that... um, In my family, I was just with my brother last week, and uh, when my brother and his wife were pregnant with their second child, they found out that their child, a little boy, had trisomy 18, which is a chromosomal abnormality like uh, Down syndrome, which is trisomy 23. And um, they prepared their house, they got everything lined up to give Jace, their son, the best medical care of the day that they could possibly provide for him. And one day, Christy goes into preterm labor, and she has this precious baby boy at a pound and nine ounces. And my brother sat there weeping as he held his son in his hand. And immediately, they rushed him off uh, to the NICU. Actually, didn't get to hold him for several days. He's in the NICU. And over time, Jace gets better and better and better. They bring him home, and they bring him home in time for Christmas the following year, 12 months they spent in the hospital. And there could not have been more joyful parents on planet Earth than when they brought that child home. And Lord and I spent many of our Thursday nights with them to take care of their oldest child so they can go and be with Jace at the hospital. And they enjoyed six wonderful months together with this precious baby boy until one day at an appointment that Christy had a strange feeling about The doctor told her that he had developed a Wilms tumor on his kidney, which is cancer, essentially, for children. Nine out of ten children have this kind of cancer. when children have cancer, nine out of ten of the cancers are this kind of cancer. And the hope they had for this child disintegrated. And at 18 months, the Lord called their precious son to himself. And my brother, who wasn't a praying man, he became a praying man. And most of his prayers, as were mine, my fourth year of seminary, were not exactly PG because we were angry. And we cried out to God, sometimes together, sometimes alone, and we let him have it. And you know what? Lightning didn't strike. And my brother, in crying out to the Lord, actually learned how to pray through the death of his own child. Some of you need to learn how to pray the Psalms. And the Psalms are shocking in how honest they are. They are, dash your children against their rocks. May they slowly bleed and die as some of this. listen, the Psalms aren't PG. But we as a people need to learn how to pray at the full orb of our human emotion. And those of you who are slowly burning like like cotton on a trailer or a tree that's been struck by lightning or like my friend Henry, cry out to your father who already knows you're burning. He knows how much fretting you're doing. Cry out to him. Secondly, you don't just pray to him, but you've got to trust the evildoers to the Lord. You have to trust the evildoers to the Lord. Somebody this week texted me that they were praying through Psalm 37 because of an issue in their own family. And they were experiencing a profound sense of injustice. They didn't, they just, it's a complicated situation. They were caught up in this very difficult interfamily turmoil. And Psalm 37 became a bomb for them. Because they said, I can trust all the injustice that we've experienced to the Lord. And we have good reason to do so, because Christianity is based upon the idea that God in the end will judge the world, which allows us, of all the religions of the world, to actually hold back the sword from our enemies, doesn't it? There's a, a Bosnian theologian named Miroslav Volf who... Um, Saw in Bosnia, you think that if anybody has seen the injustice, it would be someone who's lived in Bosnia. Saw uh, mothers and sisters of his friends, raped and killed. And he developed a theology of pacifism, which I'm not a pacifist, but he developed a theology of pacifism that was based on the Christian doctrine of God's judgment. And here's what he says. My thesis will not be popular with the West, Imagine speaking, however, to a people as I have whose cities and villages have first been plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them that we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence today thrives, secretly nourished by the suburban belief that God refuses to take the sword. It is a whitewashed theology that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge anyone. But in a scorched land, like my homeland, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that theology will die. It is precisely because God is angry at injustice and deception that I am able to withhold vengeance. This is why, among many other reasons, I'm a Christian, he says. You have to trust whoever your evildoer is to the Lord. Pray. You've got to let it go and trust him. And thirdly, this one um, uses some body language, actually. Hold your hands out like this and then turn them over. Let's try it. Hold your hands out and turn them over. Let it go. Let it go. There's a friend of mine who was counseling a woman whose dad was a truck driver and um, her dad always brought her things every time he came home from a trip. He'd bring her a a candy bar from a truck stop. He'd bring her a souvenir. He'd bring her a rock from a national park, which I actually think is a felony. Um, And he would bring her things and she loved her daddy. She was six, she loved her daddy. And one day her daddy goes on a road trip and never comes back. She's in my friend's office and she's 34. And they begin talking and it becomes pretty apparent after meeting several times together that she's she's still waiting for her daddy. She's waiting for him to pull around the corner and come back. My friend says to her, you know that your dad is never coming back, don't you? and you have to let that go. Some of you are in families that have been divided by either financial issues or by relational issues. And listen, a postcard at Christmas and Thanksgiving may be the best you get. And you have to be able to manage that. And you have to let it go. It's out of your control. And as much as you want to try to fix it and put it back together, you might not be able to. And by letting it go, you're actually saying to the Lord, Lord, you will not let me fall. You have established my steps and you hold me. And friends, that is the beauty of the gospel of grace. Psalm 37 is given to us to help us learn how we are not to fret. And you have to pray it. You have to leave the evildoers to the Lord, and you have to be able to let it go. Otherwise, you will be tying yourself up in knots. But I listen. Please do not think that if you were God, you'd do it any better. My friend Henry, several years after his own divorce, um, began to realize that he'd never actually believed the gospel because he was always trying to put together this mirage of the good life of a Texas kid that even in ministry wasn't a Christian. And he heard the gospel. And he heard the good news that God is merciful to me, a sinner. And today he is back in ministry in the Dallas area. And we sit around and talk about the gospel and how beautiful it is. And it's amazing to see that he gets it after so many years of thinking that he had it all together when he was fretting evildoers all the time. Fret not because of the evildoer. Know that your savior holds you securely. know that he welcomes you freely, that you are his guest of honor. Pray Psalm 37, make it your own. Apply it to your situation. Leave the evildoers to the Lord. Trust that his word is true, that he will bring upon the judgment. And then let it go. Because your Savior holds you in his arms and he sings over you his love and he is proud of you when you struggle over sin and when you struggle to release these evildoers.